0: Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the first ever 5-Tool Deal Podcast. I'm Paretsky.
1: And I'm JR.
0: Two consultants looking to make business news exciting and digestible for anyone interested in staying up to date on mergers and acquisitions, also known as M&A. And appreciate a few good old American sport reference I. For those who might not be familiar, M&A is essentially the free agency and trading block of the business world combined.
1: When a team's farm system isn't enough, they lean on free agency and trades to make the best roster possible.
0: When a company wants to improve performance, they often lean on M&A to acquire talent, fill gaps in their capabilities, and increase revenue and or profit for the short and long term. We'll be breaking down three major M&A deals each week. This week, we'll discuss the potential acquisitions of two major sports and digital media companies. Barstool
1: Sports and The
0: Ringer. Which could not be happening for more distinct reasons.
1: We'll close out by telling you about Plaid, the software company acquired for $5.3 billion because of its critical role as the irreplaceable field maintenance crew behind Venmo, Robinhood,
0: Coinbase, and more. Pretty much all of us have used Plaid without even knowing it.
1: And without further ado, Koretsky, let's get into it.
0: deal this week we're going to be covering the Churnin group potentially selling a majority stake of barstool sports to penn national gaming
1: all right let's start off with a little background on barstool sports the high profile controversial fast-growing sports media company that i think all of us are pretty familiar with barstool is pretty known for their social media accounts which Everyone and their brother has pretty much followed in their podcast, pardon my take, being the most famous. I mean, last week we saw LSU win the national championship. Next morning, the coach and Joe Burrow both showing up to uh, be special guests on their episode for the day. That's, if that says something about their popularity, I don't know what does. Uh, Penn National Gaming. It's a public tra- publicly traded operator of casinos and racetracks that's operating in 41 properties in 19 states. Most of those locations are under Hollywood Casinos brand and have you know 3.1 billion dollars of revenue. So pretty massive company with a big presence in the U.S. Um, Just a little background on the environment. We recently had the Supreme Court bless us all with making the legalization of sports betting I truly feel blessed,
0: especially given that my parlay hit pretty big this past week. With the Chiefs hitting me over and covering the spread.
1: Oh, absolutely, I'm right there with you, making legalization of sports betting a state-by-state decision in May. Good thing we're in Illinois where it's already legal, Uh, but I think we're supposed to see two-thirds of uh, the states in the U.S. become legalized by the end of 2021, which is ridiculous to think about, just a massively growing industry, so everyone's trying to jump on this, Penn included. So let's talk about it. Let's get some answers on some questions about why this deal is really happening. Let's start with why Penn might take interest in Barstool. Pretsky, what do you think?
0: Yeah, so this deal is not really about podcasting or digital media, which is super interesting. This deal is all about customer acquisition. Barstool is a valuable property because of the advertising revenue it can generate, both on its podcasts and its other properties. But that revenue pales in comparison to the potential of the sports gambling industry. To put that into a bit, a bit, of, a bit of financial context, podcasting is currently estimated to be just shy of a billion-dollar industry. In 2019, only being legal in the select states, legal gambling in the U.S. is already over a $1 billion industry, surpassing podcasts in just one year of legalization in terms of revenue. So what that means for Penn National is that Barstool is far more valuable to them than it is to most other people because their brand and their ability to reach and access sports, current sports gamblers and potential future sports gamblers is going to help Penn move into the market and help capture the, a larger share of that opportunity that has been created by the Supreme Court's decision.
1: Right. And I also want to touch a little bit. It's not just for the value of pen, right? I mean, we're seeing Barstool acquire a lot of customer base through this acquisition, right? They're going to have access to a lot more people that are going to be getting the attention at all these locations across the country. They're going to have access to relationships for branding and marketing and advertising that they previously didn't really have the money to do. So this is going to be a huge bonus for both of them. I mean, we also knew that Barstool was in talks of selling prior to all this happening. They had talked to FanDuel. They had talked to uh, some of the other major gambling companies in the U.S. So this has not been something that's new.
0: Absolutely. uh, And something, something, JR, which we'll we'll talk about frequently, I'm sure, is that when it comes to M&A, 2 plus 2 does not equal 4. In this case, 2 plus 2 might equal 10. Because the power of the joint properties that these two companies have can be so much more valuable potentially than what either of them are able to do individually.
1: Right. And I think Portnoy said it pretty well himself. He was talking about how – Who's Portnoy? Those who might not know yeah, for those who might not know the famous Portnoy famously known for his pizza slice review of every <laughs> single day of his life, the president and CEO of Barstool Sports said it himself he is Looking he was looking for a while for somebody that you know would help be the one player that could help break that brand to the next level and help the gambling company be the best and biggest gambling company in the u s so he was waiting sitting on the the right person or the right, the right company to uh, you know strike that deal with and it sounds like Penn might be the one um, let 's talk a little bit about Sharon, right like why would you divest? Why is Sharon maybe likely to you know, give up Barstool sports depend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple reasons why Churn in is probably going to divest here. First and foremost, cash is king, right? They're looking to turn a profit on the investment that they made a few years ago. And to them, Barstool is only a digital media company. And that's that's its real potential, is the revenue that it can bring in there as we've just laid out it can be so much more valuable to a gambling property operator and so as a result Chernin's likely going to make a huge return on this investment after only a few years which is going to help them fund other operations and other portions of their business the other element here is that barstool has while it has a very loyal and popular following it's always been a little bit of a controversial brand And does not necessarily garner love from everyone in in media circles and from from all demographics and so it causes a little bit of has caused some headaches for churning in the past and might be a bit of a relief to finally be be void of the asset
1: right I I read up on uh, a lot of the executives were growing weary of defending their investment barstool just getting tired of Backing them up all the time because there's just they're offending people, right? Barstool takes pride in, you know, trying to share the news and the local updates, kind of how they aren't shared otherwise, right? Just as a as a friend of friend kind of conversation, not so much as a PC, <laughs> as as some might say. Um, And that's kind of why so many people take attraction and draw towards this brand. And that's why it's taken off, right? So, you know, it is kind of like the Antonio Brown to the (laughs) Raiders, right? I mean, they're getting rid of him because he was a headache, right? The bar stool caused some headaches and now they don't have to deal with that, right? They got the return on the investment they're looking for. And now Antonio Brown's ready to go and, and, and make some plays for the Patriots, which let see if it pans <laughs> no, out not, better than that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not only are they rid of Antonio Brown, but they're getting a huge stack of cash yeah. at the same time. For our second deal this week, we are covering Spotify potentially acquiring the ringer. JR, why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about each of those companies?
1: Absolutely. Well, we got Spotify, the very well-known company for being the most popular music streaming service in the world, actually has a Swedish origin for those that don't know. Um, Recently, their CEO, Daniel Ek, made it clear he wants to make Spotify to be more than just a music platform and to be an all-in-companies all-encompassing listening platform we've seen their revenue go up a lot in the last year over year last couple of years um, about 30% up since last year and we see the active users on a monthly basis going up at a very similar rate which is Very successful, even though they've become profitable just for the first time as of February 6, 2019.
0: And monthly active users, for those who might not know, really important metric for all tech platforms and software, consumer-facing software companies. They really want you to be using them on a monthly basis, and they want that number to constantly be rising and never to go down in terms of the number of people using their platform.
1: Absolutely you hit the nail on the head and then we're talking about the ringer right the sports media and pop culture website and podcast network founded by sports writer Bill Simmons all the way back in 2016 where you know they've seen some pretty decent revenue growth as a small player fairly small player in the market. You know they have 35 million downloads um, across their 28 or so shows. Uh, the main competitors there are ESPN, Bleacher Report, that I right. think most people are probably familiar with.
0: Right, and interestingly enough, ESPN has some plenty of similar sports coverage to what the Ringer offers, and Bill Spimmons spent a big chunk, I think 14-plus years, at the ESPN as part of his early career, uh, where he also kind of started off his career before ESPN with Jimmy Kimmel Live. Kind of a fun fact there.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he it was interesting also, he's asking for $200 million from spotify which that's a 13 times podcast earnings multiple (laughs) um that's that's pretty uh pretty crazy seeing as though they were valued at
0: around a hundred when they were you know going through some of those discussions last year um yeah and and, uh, something interesting is that spotify is very familiar with the ringer because the ringer's podcasts are on spotify and have been for a long time but the ringer's podcasts are also available on every other platform and uh even though they have started dabbling with some exclusive content in, in various forms. So for example, they have a, an exclusive podcast to Spotify called The Hottest Take, which probably helped solidify this business relationship between the two that's eventually leading to the acquisition. But they also have exclusive podcasts with other platforms like 1999 Rewatchables with the, podcast, the premium podcast platform that you have to pay for uh, called Luminary.
1: Right, and this is definitely not new right to Spotify or other of the industry players we've seen Spotify alone have three podcast startups acquire them last year spending about 400 million on doing so um, two of them being podcast networks, and one of them being a platform kind of tech tool used for creating them. I think it's really interesting that they're continuing this. You know, it shows that maybe they've gotten some value out of those investments early on, and uh, they're seeing the continuation of of developing it through the you know the very diverse and fragmented market that it is right now. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about why it makes sense for Spotify. You want to you want to give us a little
0: yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so I think to to answer the question of why Spotify would be interested in making this acquisition, you really have to start talking about Apple. Uh, so Apple has kind of had an interesting history with the music and listening content industry generally, where iTunes, obviously incredibly popular when we were both kids, and was the main way. I was paying 99 cents for every song that I liked. Right. Uh, and then with the rise of streaming... Uh, music, the kind of library type of thing like iTunes really faded away completely altogether. And Spotify really emerged as the most prominent player in that market. And then Apple relaunched as Apple Music to try and compete with Spotify there. Uh, to help put that in context, right now I think Spotify is, is leading with about 36% market share for music streaming while Apple music's down about at about 20% but still they've they've competed for for a long time kind of back and forth in the music space right and I
1: I just want to jump in here because I love that you started with Apple right because they really did invent the word podcast it literally comes from the combination of iPod and broadcasting right so it it all does definitely start from Apple and I just had to had to chime in there but yes absolutely I completely agree
0: But so what's really interesting is that since Apple invented podcasts, uh, essentially, they didn't invent the audio content as a medium, but really the term podcast, as JR said, literally comes from there. And so since then, they really have dominated the podcast market, being the first marketplace that was available for podcasts. Uh, But in recent times with Spotify's new push, Apple podcast market share has slipped from about 80% to only down to down to around 63% now, with Spotify being the second largest player in the market, albeit with only about a 10% market share, but growing uh, on a regular basis right now. And, and that's really why this, this makes sense for Spotify. At the end of the day, they are competing for your ears, which they want to own, or at least they want to own everything that's going into your ears. And they are competing with Apple for that, and by Bringing more exclusive content inside and uh, helping to shore up their podcast capabilities, they're hoping that they can win more customers over from Apple Podcasts.
1: Absolutely, they they are absolutely just fighting over the consumer base, right? They're trying to acquire as many customers as they can and retain them. You know, it's that exact description between Apple and Spotify when we were talking about that, right? The back and forth between Apple Music, Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We're seeing this back and forth between companies, and that comes from the problem of, you know they're having a problem acquiring these customers and retaining them, which Spotify believes listeners who also listen to their podcasts are just more likely to pay for a premium version and they're less likely to stop using the service. So it is not only an acquisition strategy, you know, to get that exclusivity piece that we were touching on a little bit earlier, but it's also so that we can develop them and keep them as customers, uh, not just from a podcasting perspective, but as a streaming service
0: audio provider in general. Absolutely, and for those who might not be as familiar, because this really is, I think, the third element to why this acquisition makes sense for Spotify. But Spotify makes money in two main ways. Number one, they get uh, revenue from advertising for non-paid customers. Second, they get uh, the premium subscriptions for each paid customer on a regular basis. And so on the advertising side, what they want to do in podcasts, right now pretty much the whole podcast industry is based on advertising. That's the one of the main ways right. that The Ringer makes money right now. Really, podcasting, a little bit of merch, a little bit of creative partnerships, but 95% is going to be in advertising mm-hmm. or something like that. And so what Spotify is trying to do is transform what is currently only a billion-dollar podcasting industry, you know, rough more or less, uh, into an industry that is more reminiscent of digital advertising, where you have right. companies like Facebook being worth $600, billion, I think, at their current market capitalization. Right. Uh, And they want to increase the value of podcast advertising by introducing a new dynamic micro-targeting so that uh, rather than... The same ad running on every on each podcast no matter who's listening to it now those advertisements are going to be tailored to your specific interests and are going to make it more likely that you're going to go take action and go buy something because of that ad
1: absolutely and i think you know we see an average uh, podcast advertisement being sold and going for about 25 30 dollars per thousand viewers on each podcast, right? So if we take that multiple, but now we are able to offer, you know, Spotify's able to offer more targeted advertising. I mean they can bump that price up exponentially, right? Because they're targeting Absolutely. not just the demographic of the podcast viewer as hoping to be the, you know, the demographic that they're targeting for their own advertisement, but now they can really focus on what else are they listening to outside of that podcast? What type of music maybe they're listening to. That's just that blows my mind that there's an algorithm out there that actually exists that can do that, um, but yeah. So okay, we talked about Spotify. Let's talk a little bit more about the Ringer. Well, how does it make sense for that?
0: Right. So I mean, with a with a deal like this, there's there's one obvious answer that almost always exists, which is that the founder who has a lot of the who has a lot of uh, big equity in the company, big ownership, they usually want to cash out when they're going to be selling their company. Uh, And so that's a a huge perk for Bill Simmons and for other early stakeholders and some of the other uh, kind of probably Mm -hmm. venture venture financiers as well as early employees who probably had some equity. But the other really kind of two main factors that I think might be in play here, one, this gives the ringer access to the second largest trove of podcast data in existence. (laughs) And right now, Apple releases none of their data to the public. And so podcast publishers like The Ringer don't have access to all of this information that might help them make their podcasts better, might help them make their podcasts more popular. And by having access to Spotify and being part of Spotify, they would have access to all of that data that Spotify has on its listeners and be able to make podcasts that are going to be more effective and generate more revenue. The other factor that is kind of interesting is that Ringer staffers and writers actually unionized back in 2019. And while unionization, very positive thing in a lot of cases from employees, from a company profitability perspective, it can definitely have negative impacts because the employees have more power and control to dictate terms and uh, wages than the senior folks do who might want to keep those wages a little bit down. And there's definitely been some speculation that the unionization kind of accelerated the timeline for Bill looking to sell before maybe facing harder times and harder times turning a profit in a very competitive digital media environment.
1: Right. I think you you hit two things, right? I mean, data is everything right now. It is is blowing valuations out the wazoo. We see it in healthcare startups. It is insane the multiples we're seeing valuations go for right now. And it's all because of their data before they've even monetized anything. So I think just having that be the foundation of any company is absolutely going to lead to how prosperous their future is. The other piece of it as you touched on their unionization, that's their little Antonio Brown theme that we're going with. Uh, you know, they got their little headaches, right? I mean, that is a headache from the standpoint of trying to find a buyer, which I think is is one of the coincidences. The other one is that, I think it's funny, both the Ringer and Barstool are both led by men who started blogging about Boston sports. How coincidental is that?
0: Yeah, I mean, crazy that the news came out in the same week. and. Could not be for more different reasons. I mean, just quickly to recap, right, the Barstool acquisition was all about accessing gambling customers and going beyond the intrinsic value of podcasts in order to make more money by turning those podcast listeners into gamblers on your platform, while the Ringer deal is all about increasing the value value of the podcasts themselves and the value that those podcasts can bring to Spotify, who wants to own your ears. The third and final deal we're going to be covering this week is Visa acquiring Plaid. JR, give us the company deets. Absolutely, we'll start with the acquirer, as always,
1: Visa, which is the largest U.S. card network. They basically facilitate a lot of the electronic fund transfers throughout the world, most commonly through their card network of branded credit cards, debit cards, prepay cards, et cetera. And they've been really successful, Paretzki. They have $20.6 billion in revenue, Oof. which is huge and really good in comparison to some of their competitors like MasterCard. Um, but we're also seeing what's really interesting that they're also competing not only with these card holders, but they're starting to compete with digital payment companies like PayPal. So that brings us as a nice segue into the acquiree, which is Plaid, the financial tech company that's based in San Francisco, like any other tech company (laughs) ever, uh, that has an API software tech platform, which basically just enables the applications that they're connected to so that they can connect to the user's bank account directly. Uh, I don't
0: know exactly what that means, but to to put it in an analogy for the other people, (laughs) probably like me, who would... Let's simplify this. (laughs) Uh, A lot of companies, especially like the main media outlets that I've seen covering this type of thing, really love to describe Plaid as the plumbing behind digital payments. But I prefer to think about Plaid as as really the field maintenance crew, right? As a viewer of sports, right? Football or baseball. You don't really think about or interact with field maintenance, but the game cannot be played if they don't do their job.
1: Right. And like many of us don't know what goes behind the scenes, right? The field maintenance, you don't know all the work that goes into just getting that sport the game ready. Many of us don't even know we use this technology. A lot of us already do it. I mean, it is the technology behind Venmo, Robinhood, which I am both avid users of, and Coinbase.
0: Wait, you don't don't own Bitcoin?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I do not. I do not own any Bitcoin, thank God. Uh, As of December, Plaid said it actually has one fourth of people in the U.S. with bank accounts, which is approximately 60 million people have connected to this fintech company through an app in wow. some way, shape, or form. So they've been really successful, Presky. They've got a revenue of about $150 million per year, which means that Visa is buying them at a 35 times multiple sales, one of the highest price sales multiples in recent history Woo. for a private company. I mean, we need just to take a second to acknowledge that. That's insane. That's incredible.
0: Moment of silence for the sales multiple, please. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, well, this is one of
1: our first weeks, right? We get a deal like this. I mean, it's pretty... Uh, Pretty awesome. Um, but one thing that's interesting, so Visa, we talked about how Visa and MasterCard are, are competitors, right? They're both very commonly known credit card companies, uh, but they also both invested in part of Plaid's $250 million fundraising round Whoa. last year, which is pretty interesting given that Visa eventually was the one that bought them out outright, right? So let's talk a little bit more about why Visa is now buying Plaid outright.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For Visa, this is both a growth accelerator and a defensive play. Visa certainly regrets not moving more quickly on real-time digital payments. So to kind of give a little bit of history and context that, that I think is really critical here, when originally in the post-gold era, <laughs> uh, you know, with currency and cash becoming the, the primary form of transaction, Eventually, that was replaced by credit cards, and Visa was there to capitalize on that opportunity, as well as American Express, MasterCard, so on and so forth. But while credit cards are not going away, some of their business is now being threatened by a new era of payments. That is digital payments.
1: Right, and Visa does not want to miss out on that next generation of payments, do they?
0: No, they absolutely do not.
1: No, and no one in their right mind would. Second element here is that it offers a way into B2B aka business-to-business payments which has long been somewhat untapped area for card companies and could allow them to expand revenues. So, um, you know, the other piece of it, lastly, is I think the concerns about security, I think just fintech companies in general, I, I do it myself, you know, I'm skeptical about linking up my bank account to anything, because I don't know what it is. I don't know who's operating the other side of it, who has access to my information, uh, it gives me nerves, and it gave a lot of these banks nerves for using any technology or allowing their consumers to link their bank accounts to these technologies. So having a big-name brand like Visa will eliminate a lot of that you know, concern from those banks.
0: Right, and at the end of the day, you know, when it, all, all three of, uh, of those elements kind of roll into a, a larger theme that you'll see in a lot of transactions if you follow M&A closely like we do which is if you can't beat them, buy them, right? (laughs) Visa would have loved to build a similar service organically and to be able to effectively compete in digital payments having built their own system up from scratch. But unfortunately, some of their efforts and their flirtations in the space trying to do something like that really didn't pan out. And so if you can't beat them, buy them.
1: Yes, that's definitely uh, quite the line there. So let's talk about the implications of this deal for other card carriers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what's really interesting is that this deal might lead other competitors, Amex, MasterCard, Discover, Capital One, to try and go after other fintech companies in order to play more in the cardless payment space. Their concern and their thinking is that as the world, if the world becomes increasingly cardless, we do, they do not want to be left behind. And so even though the the card environment, particularly in the U.S., is not truly being threatened yet, in the long term, this has the potential to be a major source of disruption. And JR, a question that I'd like to pose to you is what do you think happens in developing countries where cash is still the dominant form of payment? Do cards or uh, fintech, direct payment solutions, eventually win out? Wow! What's your prediction? Wow!
1: You really just had this one sitting in your back <laughs> pocket, waiting for this, didn't you? Well, I think it's interesting, right? So, if we think of third world countries, they're often using cash, right? Because they're just doing smaller payments, not as much money, but probably a lot more volume of of uh, transactions going around. And so, from a from a development standpoint or developing country standpoint, I think this offers an interesting opportunity on whether or not they go to cards as they continue to develop, right? Where this card industry that we have now is now going to technology. What's, the, who's to say that it can't just skip the whole card piece of it and go straight from using cash and once it becomes a developed country, you know, where the technology is available, it's easily accessible, just like technology goes down in price so rapidly and, uh, you can buy you know, an old iPod for a lot less than you can buy a new iPhone. Right? We thought so, that we were
0: bringing up iPods twice in this podcast. <laughs> a lot of apple, apple. I haven't thought about iPods in so long. <laughs> I
1: know. It's crazy. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a great question. I definitely am interested to see more and how that actually rolls out from a technology standpoint. But I would say that all but in all... you on the spot.
0: One, one word. Cards or fintech?
1: I got my money on fintech.
0: All right. You heard it here first. JR predicting fintech to to seize the day in in the third world. But with that, going to wrap up our podcast for this week. I'm Paretsky. I'm JR. Tune in next week for another episode of 5 Tool Deal.